Thanks, y'all. Morning. Morning, everybody. I mean, seriously, is that all you got? Oh my gosh, fine. It's okay to see you, I guess. But uh, anyway, my name's Luke. I'm one of the pastors, and I'm a part of our preaching team. And I am happy to see you, even if you're not happy to see me or each other. I don't care. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to see you today. Um, you know, some of you, I realize there's just a, a growing number of people uh, in our church who, who don't have kids, right? You're like newly married. Um, or you've been married a couple years, and you're kind of thinking about whether you have kids, and it's kind of intimidating to be at a church like this because there's like a lot of kids and a lot of people with kids, and you probably get asked that question, and you're trying to even discern like, am I ready? Are we ready to have kids? And so I want to give you some proven tests. Uh, some people have come up actually with some proven tests to discern if you are ready to have kids. Uh, the first test is the mess test. Here's what you have to do. You have to smear peanut butter on the sofa and the curtains, rub your hands in cat litter, then on the walls, then cover the stains of that with coating of crayon, uh, put a fish stick behind the couch and leave it there all summer. And if you can handle that, then you've passed the mess test. You're ready for kids. Uh, there's also the toy test. You have to get a 55-gallon box of Legos. You can also substitute thumbtacks or broken glass. Um, have a friend scatter it all over the house and blindfold you, and then you try to walk to the bathroom or the kitchen, but you can't shout expletives as you do it because that will wake the children. But if you can pass that, then you pass the toy test, you're ready for kids. There's also the dressing test. You just have to obtain one unhappy live octopus. You have to wake it up early, try to stuff it into a small bag, uh, and uh, don't forget forget to double knot its shoes. If you can do that, you're ready for kids. And then finally, the grocery store test. You can borrow one or two small animals. Goats are best. Uh, you could get some from the Brazeltons. They have some goats. Uh, and you can take these goats with you to the grocery store and keep them in sight and just pay for anything that they eat or that they damage. Um, if you can pass those tests, then you are ready uh, for kids. You feel ready for kids? A lot of you are like, no, I've never been ready for kids. And the reality is no one's ever ready for kids. You're never ready. And uh, kids, the Bible says, are God's gift to you. And uh, amen, Danny. Amen. They are God's gift to you. And, and here's, here's some of how they're a gift. When you're, when you're young and strong and idealistic, they are God's gift to humble you that you don't know jack and you have no control over anything, right? They're just God's gift that way. And then as you kind of sort of work through that and you get into middle age and everything just kind of becomes a little bit routine and a little bit the same and a little bit yesterday just like the day before and last month like this month and on and on, kids are God's gift because as they're becoming teenagers, you're realizing, oh boy, I'm on a wild ride and I needed something to shake me up a little bit. Kids are God's gift to us and we never quite uh, feel ready for it. But what we want to try to do today in this just short passage is to, to help, help give us from Scripture just some guidance and some wisdom and some direction about what it looks like to be parents that honor the Lord. This sort of just fits with everything we've been talking about as we go verse by verse through the book of Colossians. In chapters one and two, uh, Paul has been laying out this idea that, uh, that Jesus is supreme in all areas of life. Paul, the apostle, had never uh, been to this church, but he's heard about them and he's encouraging them and he's saying, hey, I want you to know that everything in, area, in every area of life is uh, underneath the supremacy of Jesus. And then he starts to apply that when he gets to chapter three. He says, here's how it looks. There's a certain identity that you're supposed to have because your true identity is not something you earn. It's not something you achieve. It's something that's a gift. It's received by grace. 
He says, now you have to live in light of that new identity. Here's the character I want you to develop. Here's the bad stuff that's not the real you anymore. I want you to take that off. Here's the true stuff that is the real you. Fan that into flame. And then he's moved in this most recent section into family. And so uh, we've got the iPad back today. Uh, We tried the iPad a few weeks ago. A few of you said I should try it again. So we're going to try it again. Uh, So we've got the iPad. I just want to show you kind of this section uh, that we're in uh, here at the end of Colossians 3. In Colossians 3, 18 and 19, this is what we looked at last week. We saw this uh, deal of wives and husbands. That was last week. This week, uh, today... What we're looking at is verses 20 and 21. Uh, next week, we're going to look at bond servants and masters. You can kind of see the, the dynamic here. You have wives, children, bond servants. These are all folks that are naturally in a more vulnerable position. They're naturally in a position of less strength, less power, less influence. And so they are supposed to do everything they're supposed to do in light of the Lord, not in light of the human authority. That's pretty interesting. And then Paul addresses the ones with more power, the husbands, the fathers, the masters. And what's fascinating about this, and this is what we're going to see today, is that what Paul's doing in all of these cases, he's saying, hey, you have a natural place of authority. You have a natural position of power. You have a natural kind of dynamic of strength. And I want you to use it entirely differently than everyone else around you. So that's kind of the dynamic, the big picture of what's going on here. Uh, but we're going to just look uh, today at these two verses. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. And fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. We'll go quickly through the children part and then spend most of our time uh, on the parents. And I've titled this message, The Power of Parenting. Uh, someone backstage uh, heard that title and they said, well, when do I get that power? Uh, and... Uh, Yeah, don't you wish it was like, now you had it. Uh, The reality is you have it. The question isn't how do you get it? The question is what do you do with it? Because you already have it. So that's what we're going to look at here. So let's pray. We'll ask God's help and uh, dive in. Father, thank you so much uh, for kids. Thank you for the gift that they are, for the ways that they humble us, for the ways that they teach us, for the ways that they show us your heart. Uh, for the insight that they give us into ourselves and into the world and into you. God, I pray for the kids here, that even in just this one verse that addresses them, that you'd encourage their hearts. And I pray for the parents who are easily discouraged. God, that you would use this verse to encourage us, give us a sense of your heart for us as your parents. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so first he addresses children, children. You'll notice in each of these uh, verses, there's the who it's addressed to, there's the command, and then there's the reason. So in this case, we have the children. This is uh, children. In this case, uh, Paul is not talking about anyone who has parents, right? That's everybody. Uh, He's talking about children who are under the authority of their home still, of the home they grew up in, right? So this does not apply uh, to adults, Uh, though the Bible does speak to that. One of the Ten Commandments is uh, honor your father and mother. That's a a command that doesn't have an expiration date. But here he's specifically talking about uh, the the dynamic of children in their parents' home. And he says, children, here's what I want you to do. I want you to obey your parents in everything. This is a word that's pretty interesting. It actually means to listen under. That's the literal word of it, listen under. Saying, hey, kids, one of the things that you uh, have a tendency to do is to not listen. 
parents, we'll get to you. You can't amen yet, okay? But kids, you have a tendency to not listen, and obeying is this idea of I'm going to listen to my parents, and I'm going to listen under their authority. I'm going to come under their leadership. I'm going to come under their guidance. I'm going to obey my parents. It says in everything. Now, of course, just like wives are not to submit to husbands, if husbands are asking them to sin, uh, children, you're not to obey your parents if they're asking you to sin, Uh, But in everything that isn't sin, there is just this posture of listening under, of obeying, of following your parents' leadership. Why? Well, he tells us, for, that's a good word that says, here's here's the reason, for this pleases the Lord. It pleases the Lord. Not because your parents are brilliant. Amen. Uh, Not because your parents know everything. Not because your parents are always right. But obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. By the way, if you obey, but you do it grumpy, we call that in our house huffle puffing. Oh, you're just going to huffle puff? No, no, no. You're going to obey with a kind and generous heart. So this is what children are called to do. And then we get to parents, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time. Now, here's what's interesting. I have actually just recently, uh, for some other reason that I don't need to explain, calculated that I have preached now, I'm coming right up on 500 sermons that I've preached at Redemption Gateway, which that feels kind of fun. That's a cool milestone. Um, So that doesn't include camps and retreats and, you know, men's breakfast. That's just like Sunday sermons. And it's interesting because I'm going through a passage like this, I'm trying to go like, man, what what have I preached before related to parenting? And as I went kind of back through all my old notes and all my own archives, uh, what I found is I only really have, I, th- I could find two messages related to parenting. One I did last year for Mother's Day. You can go back and listen to that if you want. It's called 4D Parenting, kind of a big picture vision of parenting. Um, and, and I think the, the other one was the first time we preached Colossians in 2009. And I think what happened was, as I, as I was, a, I think at that point, a 29-year-old lead pastor with a two-year-old and a baby, I realized I am not qualified to preach on this sermon. <laughs> like I, and so from then on, what I pretty much did was every time we would get to a parenting passage, I would invite a guest. <laughs> Which, that's smart, I think, actually. Like, so Tim Kimmel was here uh, in our Ephesians series. You can find a phenomenal uh, message that he did on uh, spirit-filled parenting. He was great. Tom Schrader, who's now with the Lord, he came a number of times and, and preached about parenting. Uh, so I realized, like, I haven't, I haven't done this a lot because I just, I realized I wanted more parenting reps. And now I've had more parenting reps. Uh, my oldest is going to be 16 in a month. Um, and I've got four kids. I'll show you our family here. Uh, we've got four uh, kids. Molly is there next to me in the middle. She is next to me, yeah, right? And then uh, Abby, uh, Caitlin, Mary, and Hank. So I've got high school, middle school, elementary school, preschool. So here's the thing. I'm still a, now, now I'm a player coach, all right? I'm still in the game. And I still have, like, not everything figured out. But I have some reps under my belt. And I want to try to leverage that to, to apply some wisdom to these verses that are here. Now, I want to share with you kind of three things just in terms of so you kind of know where I'm coming from as I come to a passage like this. The first one is being a dad is my favorite thing in life. I love it and I can barely talk about it without crying because I just love it so much. I believe with all my heart what someone once told me that the greatest thing you do might not be something you do, it might be someone you raise. I believe that with all my heart. 
And so I love being a dad. I'd also say it's an area for me of high confidence and security. Now, I make tons of mistakes, and I'm under no illusions that I always get it right. But I know some parents who, like, the, the weight of parenting and trying to get everything right is really overwhelming to them. And if that's you, I, I, man, I just, I understand that because I feel that in other areas. But in this area, I don't feel that. I feel like I'm not going to get it right. I'm for sure, I mean, for sure my kids are going to need therapy on all kinds of things. Like, that's just part of, that's part of how it goes. Like, I'm not paying for it, but, that's, you know, that's their problem. But I just feel like for sure there's going to be mistakes but I just, for whatever reason, uh, I just have a lot of confidence about this. I, I feel like, yeah, I'm going to screw it up, and that's okay. Uh, so, so that's some of it. But here's the third thing I want you to know is I have disobeyed verse 21 maybe more than any other verse in the whole Bible. Like I, I was uh, talking to my older girls yesterday. They said, what are you preaching on tomorrow? And I said, fathers, do not provoke your children. They just laughed. <laughs> like... I said, hey, if you want to, like, give me a list of all the things I've done, like, I'll, I'll totally read it. I'll read it to the whole church. I don't care. And they're like, yeah, why, why don't we not? Like, <laughs> so, so this is a short verse, but there's a lot to consider. Now, before we get into the specifics of this verse, I want to give you two other kind of big picture things. One is, uh, we realize that there's just a huge need for resources. I cannot, in a sermon, give you what you need related to parenting. Because what you need is relationship and mentoring and wisdom and insight and that just-in-time learning that happens when you bump into something and go, what do I do? Right? That's really what you need. And so what we want to try to do is connect you to those resources. So we've put together some resources. If you go to gateway.redemptionaz.com slash parenting, uh, Robin Howie, uh, who will be in the front right after the service, she'll be there to talk to you as well. She's developed mentors, parenting mentors, who you can develop a relationship with and call on an on, uh, as-needed sort of basis to get help, to get insight. She's curated a list there of books, of videos, of articles, of resources, uh, things to help you uh, keep going with that. So that's, that's the first thing. The, the second kind of big picture thing is this, especially in this book of Colossians. And, and I, can't, I can't overemphasize this. So look up here. You with me? The most important parenting work is not verse 21. It's everything that came before it. The most important thing you could do for your marriage is not just to apply today's message, it's actually to apply the last three. Because what we've seen in Colossians 3, the beginning was, hey, instead of trying to earn an identity through your achievement and through your accomplishments and through your family and through all these other things, why don't you receive an identity from Jesus? Because that's going to give you all kinds of security that actually is what your kids need. Then we looked at character and how the reality is uh, all, these, all these sins that Paul's telling us to put off are all about sexual sin and rage sin and tribal sin. They all, get this, they all have relational dynamics. And so we're supposed to put on godly character, which isn't just sort of private, but it's, it's relational. And so when you begin to apply Colossians chapter 3, you actually start to get good at relationships. And if you're good at relationships, you can be good at parenting. 
And then last week, we looked at the music of marriage, how marriage is designed to be this harmony where Jesus is singing the melody line, and we're listening closely to him and listening closely to each other and trying to key off of what he's doing to create something that's more beautiful. And one of the best gifts you can give your kids is a harmonious marriage. So, so let's not put too much weight in this one verse or in this one message. Let's go, hey, really good parenting actually comes from a life that's transformed by Jesus. Identity, character, marriage. So uh, that's some kind of, uh, I guess, front end stuff. Let's look at the verse here. So again, we're talking about fathers. It's interesting, isn't it, that Paul doesn't say parents? There's clearly a Greek word for parents uh, because he said it in verse 20. Right, it's a different word here. He's talking about fathers. Now, uh, by implication, for sure, this is a message for parents, not just for fathers. But it is interesting that Paul highlights fathers. Uh, fathers in this time period were definitely seen as like the final authority in the home. And therefore, the temperature of the home and the, and the dynamic of the home, the father's responsible for that. Now, in our day, and probably honestly in that day, mothers still bore the absolute weight of caring for and nurturing and providing and relationshiping with kids. But fathers are responsible for the temperature they set in the home. And listen, gang, we, we, have, we all have mother wounds and father wounds. But in almost every case, with almost every person I've ever talked to about it, the father wounds cut deeper. The father wounds last longer. There's something just about the way God has designed fathers. They really matter a lot. One of my favorite songs that just haunts me, uh, not because it's my experience, but because in it I think a lot of my dad's experience. It's a song by uh, Everclear, a 90s rock kid, you know. It's called Father of Mine. The last verse says, Father of mine, tell me where have you been? Yeah, I just closed my eyes and the world disappeared. He talks about how his dad just left. Father of mine, tell me how do you sleep with the children you abandoned and the wife I saw you beat? Then this is the part that just... He says, I will never be safe. I will never be sane. I will always be weird inside. I will always be lame. Now I'm a grown man with a child of my own. And I swear I'll never let her know all the pain I've known. That, that reality that when a father wounds you, really wounds you, you're always weird inside a little bit. There's always a limp. There's always a little bit of lame. And so I know that even as I address this idea of parenting and of fathering, it, it unearths not just many of our responsibilities as a parent or as a father, but, but your own father, those wounds. And I want to tell you today, you can change the trajectory of your family. One of the reasons that I'm an only child is that my dad was terrified to have kids. 
because his dad was abusive. And my dad knew the cycle of that often continues and it's hard to stop. And I just rejoice with all my heart that my dad broke that cycle. And he went in one generation from being terrified to have kids to having a son who thinks it's the greatest thing in the world. So I want to tell you, maybe your past is messed up and maybe it's broken and maybe it's like you're just trying to figure out all this stuff because you never had the examples, you never had the models. And you might never feel like you figure it out, but you can change the direction. You can change the trajectory. And so that's, what, that's I just what I want for this sermon, this message. I, I don't want to heap guilt on anybody. I don't want to heap shame on anybody. We got all kinds of that already when it comes to our parenting. But I want to try to look at God's word and go, what is this inviting us to? So fathers, do not provoke your children is the verb. Do not provoke your children. This is an interesting uh, word in the Greek. It means to uh, like challenge to a contest, which is kind of interesting. There's only two places in the New Testament that it's used. Uh, one, it's used positively. In 2 Corinthians 9, it's uh, describing how this one church, their generosity kind of provoked, it stirred up uh, generosity for other churches. It was like they kind of were trying to outgive each other. And so it has this positive idea. Uh, here in this uh, verse, it's obviously negative. Fathers, do not provoke your children to kind of uh, stir them to action as if by challenging them to a contest, sometimes uh, to exasperation. There's a negativity here. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Why? Lest they become discouraged. This word discouraged is an interesting one. It's a, a word that means to lose heart. Ever lost heart? In those days you kind of are going through it and somewhere around 9.30 you're like, you know, never mind on today. <laughs> I'm gonna, I just want to go home. Some of you live there a lot. Some of us, it takes a lot to get there. But that's what he's saying is there's this dynamic that fathers, depending on how you treat your kids, and especially if you're doing this kind of challenging, if you're kind of always trying to kind of goad your kids into something, even if it's well-intentioned, even if it's like trying to help bring out the best in them, it can do this thing where it makes them discouraged. So I want to just focus a little bit on this word provoke. And I've uh, thought of seven ways that parents provoke uh, their kids. Now, uh, Molly and I, we actually were talking through this about what are the things that discourage our kids? And we made a list of like 25 things, um, most of which we do uh, or have done, um, things we see in other people. And I was really tempted as I was putting this sermon together, it was starting to get really long because I was thinking, what are all the things that discourage our kids? Well, that's a whole different class, maybe. Um, but today, I wanted to kind of zero in on this, this idea of, of provoking. Now, here's what I'm aware of, even as I share this, is there's lots of different ages of kids in this room. There's lots of different stages. There's lots of different developmental issues and special needs and other dynamics that make it where this is not a one-size-fits-all kind of a thing. Um, but, I, but I think there's some wisdom if you stop and you think about what does it mean to provoke your kids? So here's seven ways to provoke your kids in a way that could lead them to lose heart. The first is disrespecting and intimidating them. One of the things that is really interesting when you look at the ancient literature is that there are lots of household codes like what we see uh, in this. 
Like there's lots of other ancient documents that have like, here's the expectations for them. Here's the expectation for them. Here's the expectation for them. Almost none of them have an expectation for children. They don't even talk to children. They don't even address children. But for Paul, the apostle, he says, hey, in Christ, children are people too. They're image bearers of God. They matter. And so uh, there's a reality that as, as parents, sometimes we just forget to treat our children like people. And we, so we treat them with disrespect. We treat them as kind of subhuman. We treat them as kind of our little, you know, minions to do our thing. And when we do that, we're not, we're, we're provoking them. It's a challenge. It's saying like, hey, why don't you rise up to my level because you're not quite there yet. There's a disrespecting, there's also an intimidating that we do. The power differential for parents is so big, right? And, and one of the things you learn pretty early um, when you have your first uh, child uh, as a dad is that there's this thing called your dad voice, and it works, right? Like Molly's had times where it's like, hey, can you do the dad voice thing? And it's like, Hank! Right? Like, I don't even have to get too fire. Like, I, I got a lot of vocal things I can do. You know, that's part of being a preacher. I can just start, hey, 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 knock it off. Right? But here's the thing I've learned is sometimes you have to use a dad voice to just get their attention. Right? It's like kind of hitting, it's like blowing out the Nintendo cartridge or hitting the side of the CD player because it's like, eh, 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 eh. they're just stuck in something and they can't, they can't even hear it. They're just stuck on stupid and they need like a, <laughs> right? And so sometimes you go, hey, 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 right? Oh, and it just alerts them, right? That's one thing. But I've had other times where I've used my dad voice to intimidate, to scare them to make them feel my power, my authority. And, and I don't think that's godly. That actually is one of the ways you provoke your kids, disrespecting and intimidating them. Another way is a conditional or unpredictable affection. If you're really warm and really uh, snuggly and really huggy and really kissy, when they're doing great, when everything's going well, but then you withhold that when they're not. This is how a lot of our marriages are. It's a game. And it's I'll give you this if you give me that. And if you take that kind of conditional affection or unpredictable affection, here's the thing. It works in the short term. That's why you do it. Right? It can change some short-term behavior, but the long term of it is it's disheartening. Because it's kind of a, it's a provoking them. It, it makes them discouraged. It's like when I was in college, uh, my, my senior year, um, I had this kind of epiphany of one of the reasons why I never really connected with my baseball coach. Like I always kind of hoped I would. Uh, we were having this fall practice and it was just a bad practice. Everyone was stinking and not trying very hard and it was pretty weak. And so the coach was just like, all right, everybody, just run. And so we would start running laps around the warning track. And we're just running and running and running. And he would stand there by the third base dugout. And every time we'd run by, he would yell at me. Come on, Luke, quit dogging it. Come on, Luke. Come on. Right, that's, that's how he talked. His name was Itch Jones. And Itch would, come on, Luke. Why are you dogging it? Why are you dogging it? And I was not dogging it. I mean, I was slow, right? I, didn't, I never ran. I lumbered. But I, but, I, but I was not dogging it. And so finally, about the fourth lap of this, He's like, 
Luke, why are you dogging it? And I yell back, I'm not dogging it. And I keep running. And after practice, he goes, Simmons, I need to see you. He takes me outside right in front of the thing. And he says, here's the thing. I knew you weren't dogging it. But I just want everyone else to know that I'll yell at you because you're a senior and you're a captain. I'll yell at you. And if I'll yell at you, that means I'll yell at any of them. And the light bulb clicked to me. Oh, that's why I don't feel a connection to you. Because this is a game. Because you're just trying to work the, you're trying to keep everybody kind of a little bit afraid of you. Now listen, if you want to be a baseball coach or you just have people for four years and you try to win with them, maybe that's an okay thing to do. I don't know. But that's not what you want for your kids. Because if after a handful of years of that, your kids are like, you know what, I'm not afraid of you anymore. And I get your game. And you know what? As soon as I can be out of this relationship, guess what? I will be out of this relationship. So conditional unpredictable affection is short-term motivating, long-term. It's disheartening. Number three, a way we provoke our kids is teasing gone too far. This is my main thing, right? Because teasing can be a form of endearment, right? Like there's a way of kind of giving somebody a hard time a little bit that's kind of fun, coming up with fun nicknames, you know, making fun of each other, being self-deprecating. All of that is like a fun thing until you just take it too far, which I do every day almost. And, uh, and I've thought about this, what, like, I, same thing, this morning I'm kind of prepping this on the iPad, and, and Hank is like, hey, Dad, what story are you talking about? Because in, you know, five-year-old world, everything's a story. I said, well, it's not really a story, it's more a verse about uh, children obey your parents, and, and fathers do not provoke your children. I, he said, well, what's provoke me? I said, well, it's kind of like, it's kind of like daring them to do something. He's like, oh, like the other day with the grape. Like, yeah, it is like the other day with the grape. So I'll tell you about the other day with the grape. So Hank, Hank uh, for whatever reason, he's decided he hates grapes. And I can't remember how long ago it's been since he tried one. And he likes everything else that tastes like a grape. I can't imagine he wouldn't like a grape. And so the other day, I'm like, buddy, you got to eat a grape. Not like a, you need to eat, or else you're going to, but like, come on, man, let's try a grape. Like, it's been so long. Like, you're going to love it. Like, I'll eat half of it. Like, let's, you know. And then I'm like, hey, if you do this, like, maybe we could, like, go out for ice cream or, you know, whatever. <laughs> and so it's just on and on and on and on and on and on and on about the grape until the kid's, like, in tears. And this is not like you do actually have to try to make your kids eat vegetables. This isn't like that. It's just me kind of teasing them and ribbing them, and it goes too far. And, and here's the thing. There's such a power difference that a little bit of teasing from someone a lot more powerful than you that you look up to actually hurts worse. So we've got to watch out for that. Number four, way we provoke our kids is passive-aggressive motivational comments. Hey, uh, are you thinking about doing anything with your life? Um, hey, did you think about not being stupid? Um, hey, so like this summer, you're going to pretty much just lay on the couch all day? Right, and we say these little comments, and it's like, it's like a half-hearted attempt to motivate them. Like, listen, if you got something to say, just say it. Say, listen, you got two weeks to get a job. If you need help, I'll help you. Let's, let's go through this process. But I'm not going to keep kind of making little backhanded comments. Like, have a real relationship. Just talk. Here's number five, comparing with other kids. You know, your sister, she always did her homework right away. 
you know, your brother, he was always practicing piano. We never had to beg him. Let me ask you, adults, grown-ups, how do you like being compared? How do you like it? You hate it. It stinks. Don't do it to your kids. Number six, the way we provoke our kids is not listening. This looks a number of different ways. One is it just looks like assuming you know everything, right? You don't ask questions. You're not curious because you think you already got it figured out. Another way it looks like is what you could call kind of thin slicing. You got this really thin little piece of information and you've already decided you kind of know the whole story. It's interrupting, right? You ask a question and they start to give an answer and it's a little bit not thought through. And so you interrupt them. That's, that's challenging. That's provoking. It's, it also looks like howing something to death. Right? A lot of times your kids, they'll share with you some idea they have. They'll share with you something that they're dreaming about. And, and here's what you need to learn. This I got from Andy Stanley. He says this. You need to learn this. Say, wow, not how. Dad, you know what I'm thinking about? I think I'm going to start this new you know, social media business. Wow. Because you know what they're going to do? They're never going to start a social media business. It's never going to happen. Like one out of a hundred, it's going to take, right? So they, but they come to you with all these ideas. And what you do is go, well, how are you going to do that? I don't even let you have social media. How are you going to do that? Like, why is anyone going to listen to you? How do you, you know, how, 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 how? They're like, never mind. I know who I'm not going to talk to about my dreams. Listen, do you want to be Right? all the time? Or do you want a relationship? Listen. They're people. You got to listen to them. Then the seventh way we provoke our kids is not admitting fault and asking for forgiveness. Right? Because what we're saying is I'm always right. I'll challenge you because I'm always right. I never have to ask for forgiveness. Listen, what should Christians be better at than anything? Admitting mistakes and sins and repenting. That's like how we got into the thing. <laughs> how did you become a Christian? By being good? No. By having all the answers? No. By having everything right? No. By figuring it all out? No. By admitting you stink. That's how you got in. That's how you stay in. That's how you keep growing. Listen, this is true in business and this is true in a family. When a leader admits a weakness, it is never new information to the people that are following Right? When you admit a sin to your kid, it's not that they didn't know. They didn't know if you knew. Or worse, they know you know. But they see that you're actually too proud to admit it. And if that's, if that's what's really there, man, you can take them to church every week. You can insist that they go to small group. You can play all the positive, encouraging music in the car you want. And what they'll know is, this thing's kind of phony. So those are seven ways we provoke our kids. Here's what I want to kind of close on is, is just thinking about this verse. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. What's really going on here? Like what's really happening? Here's what's happening. The Apostle Paul is totally reorienting parental power. 
Uh, by, by the way, if you're interested more on power, come this Tuesday night in this room. Uh, we're going to have a hot summer nights thing. Greg Wilson, who's coming from Texas, he wrote a book on when home hurts and some of the ways that uh, parental power and spousal power and all kinds of other power goes awry. We're going to have a conversation about what it looks like to steward power well. But Paul's totally reorient, re- reorienting parental power. Think about this. The parent's power is so big. Think about it, especially from a young age, parents have unbelievable physical power. Like your kid's life, like it depends on you completely. You have utter, total power physically on their life. You also have unbelievable emotional and relational power because every kid wants to love and be loved by their parents. So when a a kid pops into the world, it is 100% imbalanced. Not imbalanced, imbalanced. You have all the power. You have all the control. Which means, unless you are a healthy person, it will go wrong. Because think about it. There's no other times in life when we have all the power and all the control of the relationship. And if you don't figure out how to steward that well, you're gonna do damage. And so this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, I I want you to understand, here's the power you have, fathers. You're shaping everything. And so steward this well. Right? And, and here's what's amazing about parenting is is the kid comes out and you've got 100% power control. That's where it starts. And here's where, it's, here's where you want it to finish. Where you want it to finish 18 years later or 22 years later or 37 years, whenever, whenever it finishes. Here, 100% power control to 0% power and control. But with relationship, with friendship, with warmth, with connection, with influence, that's where you want it to go. That's hard. That takes like real humility, real godliness. That's what Paul's talking about here. And here's what strikes me that, in a way, and not exactly, but in a way, that's kind of what God does with us. Like a lot of us, we come to faith because it's like, do you want to go to hell? No. Believe in Jesus. Okay, I'm in. Right? And God is mostly scary. And he's mostly just powerful and holy. And over time, he, he doesn't stop being holy or powerful. And he doesn't stop being Lord or in control. You have to always do what he says. But what he does over time, what maturity in the faith looks like, is less cowering before God. And it's more friendship with Jesus. Actually, the more mature you get, the more God feels like a friend. He's still holy and he's still righteous. You still got to obey him. So it's not a one-to-one thing. But, but do you get that? That just, it feels different. I want to close with a story that has just uh, moved me for a long time. This is the kind of dad I want to be. This is the kind of father I want us to be men in this room. This is uh, from the autobiography of John G. Patton. It's called John G. Patton, Missionary to the New Hebrides, not to be confused with the general, okay? Uh, this guy was a, a missionary to the New Hebrides, which is these islands kind of near New Zealand and Australia, and the previous missionaries that had been sent there had been eaten by cannibals, and he said, that's where I want to go, 
And uh, part of the reason he had that kind of courage and that kind of strength was because of the father that he had. And in this whole early part of his autobiography, he talks about his dad, what a delight it was to hear his father pray, what a delight it was to walk to church with him and to hear him talk about the Lord, that he just had this real thing with God that was like, man, if he has a thing with God like that, I could have a thing with God like that. And so he talks about this time when he was kind of leaving the home. He was headed to the big city. He lived about 40 miles away from Glasgow in Scotland. And, and so his father had to walk with him miles to the train station. And they go for about six miles before they separate. And I just want to read to you what he says in this story. He says, my dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. His counsels and tears and heavenly conversation on that parting journey are fresh in my heart as if it had been but yesterday, and tears are on my cheeks as freely now as then, whenever memory steals me away to the scene. For the last half mile or so, we walked on together in almost unbroken silence. My father, as was often his custom, carrying hat in hand, while his long flowing yellow hair streamed like a girl's down his shoulders. His lips kept moving in silent prayers for me, and his tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was vain. We halted on reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence, and then solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears, we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could, and when... About to turn a corner in the road where he would lose sight of me, I looked back and saw him still standing with head uncovered where I had left him, gazing after me. Waving my hat in adieu, I was round the corner and out of sight in an instant. But my heart was too full and sore to carry me further. So I darted into the side of the road and wept for a time. Then rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike, kind of by this river, to see if he yet stood where I had left him. And just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. He did not see me. And after he gazed eagerly in my direction, for a while he got down, set his face toward home, and began to return, his head still uncovered, and his heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayers for me. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze, and then hastening on my way, vowed deeply and often by the help of God to live and act so as never to grieve or dishonor such a father. The appearance of my father when we parted, his advice, prayers, and tears, the road, the dike, the climbing up on it, and then walking away, head uncovered, have often, all through life, risen vividly before my mind, and do so now while I am writing as if it had been an hour ago. That's the kind of dad I have. That's the kind of dad I want to be. Climbing up. Looking out. Praying. Caring. That's the kind of dad you want to be. And I want to tell you today, it's the kind of dad you can be. And the reason I know that is because it's the kind of father you have. Not on earth, maybe. But your heavenly father is just like that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. God, I pray that you would, in your kindness, help us to experience your warmth and your affection, your care, and your embrace. 
God, thank you that you're patient with us. Thank you that it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. Thank you that you're not a father who provokes us. You're not a father who challenges us to become discouraged. But you're gracious and kind. You're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so, Lord, I pray that that it's your love and it's your affection and it's what you think that would rule the day for us. That we wouldn't be driven by our failures or even by our hopes, but that we would be driven by your care and your affection, your looking out for us. We pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.